Hello and welcome to episode 6 of my Leaders of the Civil War podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about George Armstrong Custer. Now, Custer, known to his friends as Armstrong, was a United States Army officer and cavalry commander in the American Civil War and in the American Indian Wars. Custer was one of the most complex and interesting characters of the Civil War, and for that reason I plan to cover him in two or possibly three episodes because I want to get as much information as I possibly can about this very interesting man out there as well as his wife Libby, who was, I think, equally impactful and interesting in her own right. Now today, Custer is perhaps best known for the massacre on the Little Bighorn River on June 25th, 1876, which occurred just days before America's centennial celebration. During the Civil War, however, Custer was a household name throughout the United States, starting in 1863 due to his leadership and heroics on the battlefield as a cavalry commander in the Army of the Potomac. From Terrible Swift Sword by Joseph Whelan is the following. Custer's 4,000 riders passed like a dark shadow over the Middletown meadows, the drumming of their horses' hoofs insinuating its way into the awareness of combatants from both armies. To Gordon, it was a, quote, dull, heavy swelling sound like a roar of a distant cyclone, the omen of additional disaster, unquote. Cavalry and infantry together struck the left side of Early's army with tremendous force. With shocking suddenness, the Confederate army crumbled and then broke. By the time Gordon reached his troop corps, it was too late. The Yankees were rolling up his flank, quote, like a scroll, regiment after regiment, brigade after brigade, in rapid succession, was crushed and, like hard clots of clay under a pelting rain, the superb commands crumbled to pieces, unquote. Gordon wrote, Gordon attempted to make a stand on the Valley Pike, but Custer's cavalry overwhelmed his men. And then the last of Early's regiments broke and fled in panic into the twilight. This was the Battle of Cedar Creek, where Generals Phil Sheridan and George Armstrong Custer completely destroyed Jubal Early's Confederate army once and for all in the Shenandoah Valley on October the 19th of 1864. Some say Custer was the luckiest man in the Union Army. He was surrounded by Confederates and nearly killed or captured several times, but somehow got away each time. He was hit by bullets at least twice, but they were spent rounds that didn't break the skin. He graduated last in his West Point class in 1861, actually failing out at one point, only to be saved somehow by a force that he didn't even know existed. He married way above his station to a highly educated and brilliant socialite, Libby Bacon, in uh, Monroe, Michigan, the daughter of a wealthy Republican judge, Daniel Bacon. But at the age 36, his luck ran out, and was, he was killed along with 200 troopers at the Battle of Little Bighorn in Montana Territory on June 25th of 1876. He was, well known, he was a well-known practical joker in childhood and also while at the military academy. He amassed a, uh, a record of 726 demerits while at West Point during his four years there, 
one of the worst conduct records in history. He started at the lowest, as the lowest rank officer in the Union Army and made it to general by the time he was 23. He ended the Civil War as a major general. He was court-martialed and convicted twice during his career. He was promoted to brigadier general at 23, and just days later, he fought and defeated famous rebel cavalry commander Jeb Stuart at Gettysburg. His cavalry division blocked the Army of Northern Virginia's final retreat to Appomattox Courthouse, and he received the first flag of truce from the Confederates. Custer was present at Robert E. Lee's surrender to U.S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. Now, Custer was born in Ohio, but adapted Michigan as his home state uh, and considered himself a Michigan Wolverine. He was charming and well-liked, perhaps too clever for his own good. He was played by Ronald Reagan on the big screen in uh, the 20th century. His nicknames included the Boy General, Iron Butt, Hard Ass for his physical stamina in the saddle and his strict discipline, as well as more derisive and more derisive term like ringlets for his long curly blonde hair, which he frequently perfumed with cinnamon scented oil. Okay, let's talk about Custer's early life. Custer was born in New Rumley, Ohio. On December 5th, 1839, New Rumley is a small village in eastern Ohio, very close to what is now Wheeling, West Virginia. He was born to Emmanuel Custer, a farmer and blacksmith, and his wife, Marie Kirkpatrick, his second wife. He had two younger brothers, Thomas and Boston, and a total of seven full or half siblings. His brother Thomas would eventually serve as Custer's aide when he was cavalry commander in the Army of the Potomac during the Civil War. The Custers belonged to a border state culture, which was very conservative and southern in its sentiments. His father, Emmanuel Custer, was an outspoken Jacksonian Democrat who taught his children his politics and toughness at an early age. Armstrong Custer identified with Democrats and some would argue was a Copperhead Democrat because of his later devotion to General George B. McClellan. He and his brothers acquired a lifelong love of practical jokes, which he continued at West Point and which contributed to his terrible record of conduct there. Armstrong Custer's father moved him to Monroe, Michigan, where his uh, daughter Ann lived to attend school and uh, Armstrong considered Michigan his adopted home state. He moved back to Ohio briefly to teach school and then applied to Congressman John A. Bingham for an appointment to West Point. Bingham was a Republican and would normally have chosen someone from his own party to appoint to West Point, but instead he chose Democrat Custer because he was impressed with the sincerity of his request. Now, while at West Point, Custer was popular and known as a ladies' man with his fellow cadets. Quote, he is a handsome fellow and a very successful ladies' man, unquote. His friend Tully McRae wrote of him a few years later, quote, nor, nor does he care an iota how many of the fair ones break their hearts on him, unquote. In fact, he appears to have contracted gonorrhea during a trip to New York City while he was uh, in, the, in the academy. He continued 
as a practical joker, getting constant trouble. In fact, during a sermon at a chapel at West Point, he was he sat behind a boy with bright red hair. He stuck one hand in his hair and pantomimed a blacksmith putting metal in a fire and pretended to hammer his hand on an anvil to amuse his cadets next to him. In Spanish class, he asked Professor Patrice de Genon to translate, quote, classes dismissed, unquote, in Spanish. The professor did so, and Custer stood and led the rest of the class out the door. Most of his demerits were classified as boyish or trifling. One was for, quote, boyish conduct, unquote, while, while cleaning up the camp. Another stated, quote, trifling in ranks, marching in from parade, unquote. Another stated, quote, trifling in ethical section room, unquote, while the instructor was busy at the chalkboard. Because of his Jacksonian Democrat background, he identified closely with the Southern cadets at West Point as the country was getting closer to disunion and expressed disdain toward John Brown and other abolitionists. However, after years of edging closer to the Southern cadets, when things started coming apart in 1861, he, could, he knew he could never be one of them. He discovered his intrinsic loyalty to the Union and his fellow Northerners. As mentioned earlier, uh, Custer flunked out of West Point after three and a half years, with war seemingly inevitable. His army career was over. Then he was reinstated. Out of dozens who were dismissed, he was the only one saved. He had no idea why, and not for the first time, nor for the last, an extraordinary, inexplicable turn of luck saved him from himself. However, upon graduation, he found himself under court-martial for not stopping a fight amongst his fellow cadets. It was a minor infraction. However, after accumulating 726 demerits in his four years at the academy, this was the last straw. From Custer's Trials by T.J. Stiles is the following. His academy class had graduated a year ahead of schedule. His friends had all rushed off to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, where they trained troops or joined regiments for the imminent battle. But he remained detained, facing the consequences not merely of one misdeed, but of four years of transgressions. The court found him guilty, but sentenced him to nothing. His only penalty was, quote, to be reprimanded in orders, unquote. They let him go with a slap on the wrist. Again, from Custer's trials. He remained in the army, bottom of his class, bottom of the promotion list, a highway of misconduct behind him. Only luck had saved him. Now, Custer was 5 feet 11 inches tall, very lean and sinewy. A splendid horseman, he wore a brimmed slouch hat that was popular among Southern officers, and he believed this hat actually saved him from capture at least once. He had long, blonde, curly hair that flowed when his hat came off, which it often did during cavalry charges. Now, at the start of the Civil War, uh, Custer started out as the most junior officer in the Army of the United States, having graduated at the bottom of his class. So when he got to Washington after his court-martial proceedings, he was surprised to be asked if he wanted to be presented to the General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott. And, of course, he answered joyfully. When, when introduced to General Scott, he was told, quote, go and provide yourself with a horse if possible, 
and call here at 7 o'clock this evening. I desire to send some dispatches to General McDowell, unquote. Again, from Custer's Trials. In many ways, Custer was living an adventure story. Luck rescued him from his drab existence in rural Ohio. Luck saved him from expulsion from West Point. And Luck preserved him at the court-martial. Instead of punishment, he met the nation's commanding general, found a horse against all odds, delivered urgent dispatches to the army in the field, and rode toward battle. But there, there the adventure ended. He played only a small role in First Bull Run, and after the retreat, he fell ill and went back home to Ohio to recuperate, visiting his sister in Michigan as well. He returned just in time to embark with the Army of the Potomac on the Peninsula Campaign. Now, during the Peninsula Campaign, uh, Custer served as a topographical engineer, which means he was scouting on horseback out ahead of the Army front lines, and he was also scouting from an observation balloon. In fact, he was one of the first wartime aerial observers in, the Ameri- in American history. He was also allowed to lead the occasional cavalry raid and performed well in the Battle of Williamsburg under uh, Hancock. Then Custer was allowed to lead an attack with four companies of 4th Michigan Infantry across the Chickahominy River above Newbridge. This attack was successful, resulting in the capture of 50 Confederate soldiers and seizing of the very first Confederate battle flag of the war. Now, George B. McClellan was commanding general of the Army of the Potomac at this point, and he observed Custer in the fight. He was so impressed, he appointed Custer to his staff on June of uh, 1862. He was promoted to captain at that point, but then back to first lieutenant in July. Like most other men in the Army of the Potomac, Custer was in awe of General McClellan. To Custer, McClellan was the embodiment of glory and power, epitomizing the great Napoleonic leadership ideal. In addition to this, uh, Custer also shared McClellan's conservative Democrat politics. He would later disavow this in order to secure promotion, but that comes later. After the retreat from the peninsula, McClellan uh, was sacked, and Custer had suddenly lost his patron and hero at this point. However, soon after General Pope's disaster at Second Bull Run, McClellan was called upon to, quote, save the Republic, unquote, as the Army of Northern Virginia was on its way at that point up to Maryland. Now, during the Maryland campaign, which would result in the Battle of Antietam, Custer was always slipping away from staff duty to volunteer for scouting and attacks. He spent much of this time with General Alfred Pleasanton, who would later become cavalry commander of the Army of the Potomac, and Custer impressed him greatly during a successful cavalry charge during the Battle of South Mountain. After Antietam, McClellan was again sacked, and this meant Custer was cut adrift for a period of time with no command. Now, during this time, he went back to Monroe, Michigan, and was induced, introduced to Elizabeth Libby Bacon. Now, Libby Bacon was a brilliant and fashionable young lady from a prominent family in Monroe, Michigan. From Custer's trials, we read, Custer was introduced to Elizabeth, known to her, known to, as Libby to her friends and family. Petite and slender-shouldered, she had a striking face, a quick smile, gray eyes, abundant brown hair that she often parted in the middle and pulled up 
on the back of her head, leaving stray curls to dangle around her temples. To Libby, Custer was young, handsome, and far more interesting than the lawyer, the railroad clerk, or the depressed minister who had pursued her. He was also dangerous, and for, for both reasons, he brought intrigue and romance into her life. Now, her father was a Republican judge in Monroe, Michigan, and definitely did not approve of Armstrong Custer, who was born of a Jacksonian Democrat blacksmith. He would court Libby, as well as her best friend, uh, Fanny Fafield, playing each one against the other until finally winning Libby's heart and her father's approval after he was promoted to Brigadier General about 13 months later. While he was away in Michigan, he missed the Union disaster at Fredericksburg, and upon returning to the Army, he sought out General Pleasanton, who was very glad to see him, and immediately made him part of his cavalry staff. Now, the Battle of Brandy Station, which occurred just before Gettysburg, was the largest cavalry battle of the war. Although not a decisive battle, it was the first time the Union cavalry had demonstrated the kind of fighting spirit, toughness, and elan needed to finally take on the Confederate cavalry. Now, during this time, during this Battle of Brandy Station, Custer was praised for, quote, gallantry throughout the fight, unquote and he was sent to Hooker's headquarters with a captured Confederate battle flag. Now, just after Brandy Station, Robert E. Lee began uh, to make his way to Pennsylvania, uh, but the Federals had no idea what he was doing because the Rebels' uh, cavalry screen was just as excellent, uh, as good as it always was. And to break this Rebel screen, the Federal uh, cavalry attacked them at the village of Aldi, Virginia. Custer, again, was given responsibility for a regiment of cavalry, and he was able to finally break the rebel screen in close-in combat charging. Uh, Frederick uh, Whitaker, a Union trooper who took part in this, wrote, it was, quote, the fiercest pleasure of life. Horse and rider are drunk with excitement, feeling and seeing nothing but the cloud of dust, the scattered flying figures, conscious only of one mad desire to reach them, to smite, 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 unquote. Again, from Custer's trials. Mad certainly described Custer's horse, a beautiful black uh, animal named Harry. It broke formation, streaking ahead of the Union line. Horse and rider plunged into the uh, onrushing mass of enemy cavalry. One Confederate swiveled and fired his revolver. Custer swung his sword and cut almost all the way through the man's arm. Now at Aldi, Custer and his men were cut off behind enemy lines, not for the first time and not for the last time, and had to fight their way out. This happened many times uh, to Custer during the war, and somehow he held his nerve and motivated his troopers to hold theirs while, they def- while he devised a plan to break out of the noose each time. Then, on June 22nd of 1863... Joseph Hooker promoted General Pleasanton to Major General and head of the whole Union Cavalry Corps. Just after this, and just as Lee was approaching Pennsylvania, 
Abraham Lincoln replaced Fighting Joe Hooker with General George Meade as head of the Army of the Potomac. Then, on June 29th, after seeking approval from George Meade, Pleasanton began replacing the political generals with, quote, commanders who were prepared to fight, to personally lead mounted attacks, unquote. He found just that kind of aggressive fighter he wanted in his three aides, Wesley Merritt, Elon Farnsworth, and George Armstrong Custer. All received immediate promotions. Custer to Brigadier General of Volunteers, commanding the Michigan Cavalry Brigade, known as the Wolverines. And they were, they were part of Just, General Judson Kirkpatrick's division. Custer then became one of the youngest generals in the Union Army and immediately shaped his brigade to reflect his aggressive character. Now, up to this point, the U.S. Cavalry brigades had been led, as I mentioned earlier, in large part by political generals who lacked the confidence in dash and killer instinct necessary to successfully take on the Confederate cavalry led by Jeb Stuart. In fight after fight, the Union cavalry had been consistently humiliated by rebels under Stuart, and General Pleasanton was under great uh, pressure to change this. Indeed, he just had, and the results would be immediate. Now tune in to my next episode, in which we'll pick up at the Battle of Gettysburg and Custer's rise to national fame.